turn over in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. If you recall, at Easter time, uh, Resurrection Sunday, we actually taught through the first 10 verses of Matthew 28. So we're going to take a little different approach to that this morning. So if you're curious what that message was about, you can go back on the web and listen to the, the message from... Uh, that um, morning, Easter morning. But this morning I want to talk to you about the great cover-up. Um, there's a lot of different um, ideas when it comes to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so I want to read for you the first um, 15 verses of Matthew 28. And, um, and then we'll kind of go through it together. Uh, beginning in verse 1, Matthew 28. Now after the Sabbath... Toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay, then go quickly and tell the disciples, his disciples, that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb, with fear and great joy, and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took a hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people, his disciples came by night and sold him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Well, when you come to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there's no more bigger climax in the, in the scriptures than that very event that took place. Unfortunately, a majority of people refuse to believe what the scriptures say. They refuse to believe the truth. And over the years, there's been lots of different um, theories that have uh, come up over the years and uh, some of them are kind of comical, actually. Uh, one of the most popular ones is called the swoon theory. And that basically says that Jesus actually didn't die on the cross. He was kind of in a coma and um, from the, all the severe pain and the trauma of the crucifixion. And after they took his body down thinking he was dead, which he really wasn't, um, they put him in the cool of the tomb and uh, that that aroma of the spices that he's been uh, buried with 
all the uh, preparation that was done after someone died, uh, somehow he revived and somehow he was able to unwrap his mummified body and escape the grave, um, which had a huge stone in front of it, by the way, and, and was under guard. Uh, and when he showed himself to the disciples, they erroneously assumed that he had raised from the dead. Kind of ridiculous. I mean, it's been around for a long time, but it, it takes into account the idea that Jesus, after losing massive amounts of blood from the scourging and the nail wounds and the, 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 the spear to his heart, um, the thrust, somehow he survived after being wrapped up with all those spices and put in a tomb and was able to undo himself and uh, wasn't really dead. He was just kind of passed out. Kind of ridiculous when you stop and you think of the facts of the matter. Another theory was the no burial theory, and it contends that there was actually no uh, uh, interment. There was no burial of Christ, that Jesus was never placed in the tomb. Therefore, uh, he would not have been in it on Sunday morning. Um, his body was instead, they believe, thrown into a mass grave for criminals and uh, buried with the other criminals. Uh, that's what Romans, the Roman custom was to these people after they were crucified. But when you stop and you think about that, neither the Jewish leaders nor the Roman guards would have bothered to secure and seal a tomb if they knew Jesus' body wasn't inside. Plus the simple fact that they could have went to that dump, pulled out Jesus' body and said, here he is, he's still dead. And they didn't do that. So that's kind of a ridiculous theory as well. There's even one more crazy theory than that. Um, they call it the hallucination theory. And it basically says that everybody who saw Christ, more than 500 people after he raised from the dead, were all uh, hallucinating. <laughs> kind of convenient. Um, there's one theory called the telepathy theory, which says there was no physical resurrection, but God rather sent divine telepathic messages to Christians that caused them to believe that Jesus was alive. I mean, these, these theories are just kind of nutty. There's even one called the seance theory. Um, there's one mistaken identity theory that says, well, the guy walking around with nails in his hands and his feet weren't, wasn't really Jesus. It was a mistaken identity. Um, the problem with all those theories is they never produced a body. If any of those theories were real, you could go on to the dead body of Christ and produced it. However, the theft theory, which contends someone managed to steal the body and hide it, is the only one that really attempts to explain why his body was missing. Uh, so when you stop and you, you think about that, uh, the scriptures speak pretty clearly that Christ was raised from the dead. And here in Matthew's um, narrative, we really see that, that this scheme, this cover-up, was from the religious people of Jesus' day. They did not want anyone to understand the fact that he rose from the dead. Just like, if you remember, the religious people when Jesus was up and about and ministering, when he would raise someone from the dead or he would heal them or he would cause a blind person to see, the religious leaders of the day didn't sit there and go, wow, this man must be a man from God. He has tremendous power. No, what did they say? He does it by the power of who? Satan, right? 
So you can see how hard the human heart can become. And even though right in front of these folks was evidence that he truly was the Son of God and that he did raise from the dead, they chose to somehow try to figure out a way to cover this up. And that just kind of leads us to the idea of what is the significance of the resurrection? Why is it so important? And I wrote down a couple things there in your outline. First of all, it proves that Jesus is God. In John chapter 10, verse 17 to 18, Jesus said that he had the authority to lay down his life and what? Take it back up again. And so when he actually did that, when he died and he arose from the dead, that proves the fact that he was truly God's son. It also, secondly, verifies the truth of Scripture. You can look at Psalm 16, Psalm 110. In the Old Testament, even in the teaching of Jesus, his resurrection is clearly taught. I mean, you can't read through the Bible without seeing the resurrection of Christ being taught somewhere. And if Jesus had not come out of the tomb, all the Scriptures would basically be null and void. They would not be true. Thirdly, it assures our own future resurrection. Uh, because Jesus died and rose again, we shall one day be raised like him. First Thessalonians chapter 4 tells us that. In fact, you stop and you think of the entire structure of our Christian faith. It really rests upon the incredible foundation of the resurrection. You take away the resurrection, and we're just a bunch of religious people pining after some dead guy. If we do away with the resurrection, we have no hope. It's the proof, fourthly, of a future judgment. In Acts chapter 17, verse 31, interesting verse, it says, Because he has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man who he has ordained. He has given assurance unto all men in that he raised him from the dead. The very fact that Christ was risen from the dead assures that one day there will be a future judgment and that God is who he said he is and that he keeps his word. The next thing there is it's a basis for Christ's heavenly priesthood. In Hebrews chapter 7, verse 23 to 28, we're not going to read all that this morning, but because he lives by the power of an endless, endless life, he was resurrected. It says that he is able to save us to the uttermost. It verifies his heavenly priesthood. He lives, the Bible says, to intercede for us. He couldn't do that if he was dead. So it's really the foundation of his priesthood. It also gives power for Christian living. The resurrection does. We cannot live for God by our own strength. We see that over and over in scriptures. Paul says, this life I live, I don't live... By my own thing, I live by Christ living in me. It's only as his resurrection power works in us as believers and through us that we can do his will, that we can glorify his name, that we can live in a way that's honoring to him. We can't do it on our own strength. We need that that power that literally rose Jesus from the grave. It says in... uh, Romans chapter 6, verse 4. It says, We have been buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead 
by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. See, when you become a Christian, you're not just getting an overhaul. You're not just turning over a new leaf. That's not what Christianity is. Christianity is God transforming your heart, transforming your soul, making you a brand new person, a person that you, you, you weren't before. And you look throughout Scripture and you see the accounts of people who came into contact with Christ. You think of Saul who was going around murdering Christians and he came into a face-and-face encounter with Christ on the road to Damascus. That man's life was changed forever. And you can go on and on with examples throughout Scripture. You can go on and on with family members and friends and, and loved ones that have come to Christ at some point in their life. And all of a sudden their life is transformed. They're a different person. God takes all the gifts and the talents and the way he's created you. And he makes you into the person that he desires you to be. See, it's that kind of a transformation that allows us to live this Christian life. And it's only through the power of the resurrection that that's even uh, capable of happening. We can't live for God in our own strength. And the minute we do, we're in for a sad uh, turnout of events. And lastly there, it assures our future inheritance over in, in 1 Peter chapter 3, or chapter 1, 1 Peter 1, 3 to 5, simply says this. 1 Peter 1, 3 to 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. I mean, doesn't it bless your heart to realize that God not only saves you, but he keeps you saved? I mean, if it was up to me to keep myself saved, I'd be lost a long time ago. I'd be lost the minute after I got saved. (laughs) It assures us of that future inheritance that we have in Christ. And you have to understand that whenever, just because Jesus Christ is alive, we have that glorious future. And whenever God's people gather on the Lord's day, what what we do is we bear testimony that Jesus Christ is alive. That's the reason we're here today. And that the church has received the spiritual blessings of Christ. You have to remember, though, when the followers of the Lord literally gathered on the first Lord's Day. The first Lord's Day. There was not much encouragement to be found. There was not much joy to be had. Matter of fact, they were downright discouraged and defeated. Because the man that they had been following for the last three years in hope that he would be the Messiah and that he would turn this whole thing around for them. They realize, well, wait, he he died. He's dead. (laughs) So when they gathered on that first Lord's Day, they were discouraged. They were defeated. As a matter of fact, they, they probably were off doing their own things. And it wasn't until they understood that Christ truly rose from the grave 
You can see their lives. You can document their lives in Scripture, how their lives changed as a result of the resurrection of Christ. Now, we see here in the text, in the first kind of 10 verses here, and like I said, we're just going to do a cursory view of these because we've already been through this before, and you can get that message from uh, Resurrection Sunday of, of 2012. But I see four imperatives here when you get down to verses 6 and 7, when these ladies have this encounter with the angel. Um, it says in verse 5, But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid. And they were afraid. Because whenever you see an angel, you're going to be a little bit uh, upset. And that's why angels in Scripture always said, first words almost, don't be afraid. (laughs) I'm on your side. It's a good thing here that I'm here. And, uh, you know, I don't want you to get too upset. And so that's what he says. The angel says, do not be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. At this point, I want you to remember that neither Peter nor John had seen the resurrected Lord. He was seen by the women first. And it's interesting that the women were the ones who lingered at the cross. They were the last ones to leave the crucifixion of Christ. And yet they were the first to see the risen Lord. There's a connection there somewhere. I think many times in our Christianity, we don't want to linger at the cross. We don't want... To hear the verses that say, hey, you know, you need, you need to deny yourself. You need to take up your cross and follow me. It's going to take some sacrifice. It's going to take some hard work. It's going to take some commitment. See, we're so easy and we, we want everything just to be so nice. We just want to focus on the grace of God and sit back in the armchair of grace and just go, oh, isn't this wonderful? And Jesus said just the opposite. He said, no, if you commit your life to me, it's going to be tough. It's going to be difficult. There's going to be persecution. You're, you're, you're going to be called to account on your, on your belief system if you follow me. It's not going to be a picnic. It's not going to be a bed of roses. But the, the, the women here, they lingered at the cross. They took all they could take in of the suffering of Christ. And now... First at the tomb, Jesus met them on their way home after they had gone to the tomb. They saw the angel and they heard about the resurrection of Christ. And the angel's message to these ladies has basically four imperatives here. And I just want to go over these quick because I think these imperatives are good for us to hold on to even today. And the first imperative there. He says in verse 6, he is not here for Jesus, for he has risen as he said. The very next word, the first imperative, come. The, the first of the angel's imperative was that simple word, come. It's an important statement. Because when you stop and you think about it, a lot probably could have hindered these women from coming to the tomb. The place where the tomb was. Might not have been safe. These are women. They don't have any men with them. They're by themselves. They're in a graveyard early in the morning. Not the best place to be. They might have said to each other, you know, know, it doesn't look too safe here. Let's go back. Uh, We'll come back when it's brighter. We'll come back when there's more people milling around. Or maybe 
they just had a fear of Rome in their hearts. And maybe that somehow could have hindered them. Remember, the, the tomb, the stone had been sealed by the Roman authorities. But now the seal was broken. The stone was removed. And they're standing there going, okay, guess who they're going to point to? We're the only ones here. Rome had been defiled. That might implicate them in this crime. They might have said, you know, we can't go any closer. We we don't want to go up there. You know, Rome, we're just going to get in trouble. They forbid it. Or maybe even their own sin might have hindered them. Maybe they looked at this event that took place in this tomb and realized, you know what? We're standing on holy ground. We're not worthy to be here. They might have reasoned that this, this ground is sacred. We can't go any closer. But it's interesting that these women, none of this stopped them at all. The invitation to come was from God, and they recognized the voice of God in the invitation. And you know what? They obeyed it. You know, I I want you to understand here this morning that the Lord, through the preaching of the gospel, the Lord invites you to come to him. He's speaking to you when he says, come to me, all you who are weary, who are burdened, and I'll give you what? I'll give you rest. You want some rest? Don't try to find it on your own. Don't try to find it burying yourself in your job or your work or your family. All those things are good things. But that's not going to give you rest. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. And then he says this, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. Matthew 11 verses 28 and 29. Are you feeling a little weary in your life or maybe even in your spiritual life? That invitation is open. It says, come, come to me. If you're weary, if you're heavy burdened, I'm going to give you rest. I want to ask you this morning, have you come? Have you obeyed this invitation that the Lord has given you? I want you to understand one thing this morning. There can be no knowledge of God. There can be no salvation. There can be no growth in the Christian life until you do just that. Until you recognize your own sinfulness and you recognize that you can't save yourself no matter how hard you try, no matter how hard you try to clean yourself up and make yourself look all nice on the outside. The Bible says inside is a heart that's wicked and desperately evil. It's darker than the darkest black of night. And the only way that can be remedied is through the forgiveness of a loving Savior who was perfect in every way. And yet he willingly went to a cross and he gave up his life. He took upon himself the sins of all who would ever put their faith and trust in Christ. Not just of one person, of of all who would believe in his name. That sin was thrust upon him. And the Bible says, he who was perfect literally became sin for us. If you recognize that Christ died in your place, that he died for your sins, you need to grab a hold. You need to come and you need to understand that. The second imperative here that we see, the angel said, come. And then he said, what? See the place where he lay. In verse 6. See the place where he lay. 
Stop and ask yourself the question, what would we see when we look into the tomb? What would we see? Wonderful preacher Charles Spurgeon asked that question. He preached a message, and he suggested basically five things that you should see when you look in the tomb of Christ. First of all, he says we should see in Christ's grave the condensation of Jesus Christ. See, you have to understand that Jesus Christ was not a man for whom death would be natural. You have to understand that Jesus is God. He was with the Heavenly Father from all eternity, and he'll be there with him forevermore. We would never expect Jesus Christ to die. His disciples surely didn't, even though he told them over and over and over, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to die. But on the third day, I'm going to rise. They didn't get it. They saw him doing miracles. They thought he's the Messiah. There's no way. If he's God, he can't die. But Jesus did, in fact, die for us. And we should marvel at such an amazing feat by an amazing God, that he should be placed in a tomb to save us, the very God that created us. We should see the condescension of Jesus Christ. Secondly, we should see the horror of our own sin when we look in that tomb. Because it was because of our sin that he was put there in the first place. The Bible says that death is the punishment for sin. The soul that sins, surely it will die. But you have to look at the life of Christ and surely you understand that there was no sin. He never committed a sin. He was sinless, as a matter of fact. Why then did Jesus die? Well, the answer is very clear. As you look into the scriptures in Isaiah 53, it says he was pierced for our transgressions, right? He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was put upon him. And it says by his wounds, we are healed. So many times you hear people pull that text out and they'll use it for physical healing. It's clearly talking about spiritual Not that God doesn't heal. God can definitely heal today. But let's keep it in his context. He's talking about spiritual healing. And when we look into the tomb, hopefully we begin to see the the horror of our own sin that put him there in the first place. And hopefully we begin to develop a proper hatred for it. You know, the curve should be this. You become a Christian. The more you're a Christian, the more you should hate sin. Unfortunately, that's not true in so many believers' lives. It's almost like they fall in love with sin all over again. And now they have the grace of God covering their sin, so they don't even necessarily feel that bad about it. Don't ever lose sight of the horror of your own sin. Always remember that sin isn't something that we, we do, right? Sin is what we are. We are sinful human beings. Our heart is wicked. And given the opportunity, everyone in this room would default to sin. 
And as believers, we have to work hard to keep ourselves from that. That's why the Word of God tells us in Ephesians to be filled with the Spirit. Know what the Word, the will of God is. And even more so because the days are evil. Uh, You know, we need to really protect ourselves, insulate ourselves from those sinful influences that are in our lives every day that we come in contact with. That's why it's good to get together in fellowship as believers. Not just on Sunday, maybe on Wednesday night, or maybe at a Tuesday night prayer meeting, or maybe Thursday visitation, whatever you want to do. It's good to be around other believers. I guarantee you, the moment you begin to isolate yourself as a Christian from other believers, that's just the beginning of a downward spiral in your spiritual life. And there may be good reasons for that. You may be swamped at work. You may be swamped with family. You may just have, you know, all sorts of things going on in your life financially, whatever it might be. It's very easy to lose focus of the spiritual. And yet Jesus says very clearly, no, it's the spiritual that has to be number one. Thirdly, Spurgeon pointed out, that when we look into the tomb, we should be reminded that we too will die. One day we too will die. Unless the Lord returns, obviously, for his own before that moment happens, we will also die and be separated from those we know and we love. It's just a fact of life. It's going to happen. And the tomb speaks of our mortality. And it warns us that, you know, there's, there's a life beyond this life, which you have to prepare for. Remember when I was younger, you know, you seldom think of death. <laughs> you're in your 20s and you're doing crazy things and you're jumping out of airplanes and you're rock climbing and off mountains and all kinds of nutty things. You don't even think of it. Now, occasionally, I get a little weird feeling. My leg or my chest or whatever, thinking, huh, could this be it? The older you get, the closer you get to death. That's just the facts of life. The Bible says this life is but a mere vapor. We're here for a little while and we're gone, just like that, that steam that rises out of the tea kettle. On a cool morning as you're, you're heating your water for your coffee or your tea, you see the steam come out and it just kind of disappears. That's what life is like. And yet, sometimes we get it all backwards and we're focusing totally on, on the, 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 the basics of life. We've got to earn more money. We've got to spend more time together with family and relatives and all this stuff. And all those things are good things. Don't get me wrong. But if they crowd out the spiritual, if they crowd out Christ of your life, you're going to have issues. And that's for those who have trusted Christ. Those who haven't sometimes look to those kind of things for, for fulfillment. There's a lot of rich people in the world who, at the end of their life, said clearly their priorities were wrong. And they got to the end of the life after climbing the ladder all the way to the top, only to realize that the ladder's leaning against the wrong wall. We need to be reminded of that. 
fourth, and most important, I think when we look into the tomb, we have to remember that Jesus is not in it. (laughs) He's not there. He's risen just like he said. He's conquered death. The empty tomb is, is one of the great evidences of the resurrection. Most people who have written seriously about the events of this week, if they were honest, and all the reports that we have, whether in the New Testament or even in secular sources of the time, there is not one attempt to deny that the grave was empty. There are alternative explanations. As we see here, that the disciples stole the body. But no one writer anywhere denied that the tomb was empty. How can you account for that? Not theft by Christ's enemies. If you stop and think, if they had stolen the body, they would have produced it later when the resurrection was proclaimed by Jesus' followers. It would have been the downfall of Christianity. Not the disciples of Christ. If they had stolen the body, think about it, they probably wouldn't have been willing to die, sometimes in a very horrible way, for a cause that they knew was false, for a cause that was a mere fabrication. See, the only... Adequate explanation, beloved, of the empty tomb is that Jesus had been raised from the dead, just as the Bible teaches. We need to remember that. And the last reason, Spurgeon says, the last reason we should look into the tomb is to learn that we also shall rise, just as Jesus did, if we're joined to him. See, Jesus did not come to earth merely to teach, to die, to rise again. So then the, the end, he, he might lose those for whom he died. He came to save his own, Hebrews 7.25 says, completely. To take them to heaven, to be with him forever. And when we look in that tomb, that gives us assurance that, you know what? One day he's coming back for me, for you. We're assured that that one day we'll be with him. And will be as he is, it says in 1 John 3, 2. So don't forget to come to the tomb. Don't forget to look to see what God has for us. Third imperative here in the text, the third command by the angel was go. It's really a strong reminder that however tempting it may be to remain near the tomb... And learn of all the lessons that maybe it has there. There's nevertheless work that remains to be done. And we have to get on with it. He didn't want the woman just sitting there looking at this empty tomb for the rest of the day. He wanted them to move on. He had something else for them to do. We're going to be looking next week at really the the fullness of that imperative go, because it's in the last couple verses of 
Matthew 18, where it says, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. I mean, that's the greatest work any person can have. And it's a work that is for all Christians. We need to be aware of the fact that we're to leave this four walls of this church and go out into our work environment, out into our family environment, out into our neighborhood, and remind people of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That there's a God who loves them very much, who created them, and desires them to know him in a personal way through the sacrifice of his son. There's people out there wanting to see the reality of Christianity lived out. Go out and show them. And the fourth imperative there is not just come, see, go, but also tell. The last of the angels' imperatives was tell. And you know what? It came last for a good reason. Because if we've come to the tomb and we've seen the tomb is empty... We know that Jesus was raised from the dead. And then we obey Jesus by going out into the world. And we clearly, we have to speak of what we must know about him to be true. And we're to say to people, he's not here. He's risen just as he said. I mean, this is powerful, even astonishing good news. But good news must be told. If we don't tell it, our actions can only be the result of unbelief. Or that we simply don't understand what a great, powerful, and astonishing gospel we have. Sometimes, with my grandkids, three grandkids, if we're playing a game or we're doing something, one of them will... Somebody wins the game, one of them will say, hey, I won the game. Pretty soon, the second one chimes in, yeah, Mason won the game, all right. And then the third one, yeah, they won the game. It's almost like you're hearing it triple, triple times over. That's how the gospel should come out of our our lips. We shouldn't stop. We, We should just want to hear that over and over and over again. We should report the good news in that fashion. The greatest news the world has ever heard is that Jesus Christ has been risen from the dead. And it's great because it's true. And our lives bear that out. It proves that the God of the Old Testament is a true God and that Jesus, God's Son, is our Savior. And that His death has been accepted by His Father as the true atonement for our sins. That those who believe on Jesus are in what we call a justified state before God. That there's power for victory over sin for those who belong to Jesus. And that we'll be joined to Jesus by faith. And one day we'll be raised from death to life in heaven. How can we not tell a message like that boldly to those who are perishing and those who are apart from Christ? Well, when we work our way down to verse 11, we see this cover-up B 
begin to unfold. There's two groups here who hurried into the city. There was the women and the watchmen. The women were overwhelmed with triumph. The watchmen were overwhelmed with terror. They were given the responsibility to watch this grave. The women were about to confront the world with the most tremendous fact in history. And yet you see the Roman watchmen here would soon confront the world with the most tremendous falsehood in history. And with the skill of an artist, Matthew brings these two together. And it says in verse 11, while they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. The guards in this situation were blown away by what had taken place. They didn't understand it. They just knew that they're in big trouble because they were given the responsibility to guard this tomb and now it's empty. So there was a need for the lie. You see it in verse 11 and 12. They went directly to the chief priest. Well, why did they go to the chief priest, you might ask, and not to the Roman authorities? Because you remember earlier in this account, the Roman authorities basically said, okay, I'm going to give you the guard. You make sure that you understand what they want. If they want to secure it, you secure it. So he, he basically gave these guards over to the Jewish, authority, the Jewish religious leaders and said, do whatever they tell you to do. Just secure this thing. I don't know why they want it secured, but that's fine. If that's what they want... That's fine. And say so that they were basically under the submission at this point of these religious leaders. And so it says when they went into town there, they went right to the chief priests and they told them all that had taken place. And you can read, if you read up there earlier, you'll see all that had taken place. We read about that. You had an earthquake, you had all, the angel appear, all sorts of things. Verse 12, it says, And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers. Well, who are these? This is basically the the Sanhedrin. These are the religious leaders that wanted Jesus crucified. And you have to understand, news like this would travel quickly. The the city is jam-packed with people. It's the Passover weekend. Millions of people. And the the idea that Christ rose from the dead, they couldn't allow something like this to get out. And they kind of even feared this in a way because they they are the ones that required Pilate to secure the the, the tomb in the first place. They thought, man, if somehow he comes out of this grave, we're going to be in big trouble. You notice here in this account, they didn't doubt the watchman's report. It it doesn't tell us anywhere, but they said, no, you better go double check. That's impossible. Just like when Jesus would heal folks, they didn't deny the healing actually took place or something supernatural happened. 
They didn't deny that the tomb was empty. So you had this need for the lie born out of this official report of the resurrection. And the reaction there, the Sanhedrin basically made a a big blunder in the first place with interfering with Jesus of Nazareth. But they were committed to their, their course. They certainly were not going to admit the claims that the claims of Christ were true or confess themselves guilty of the greatest crime in all of time. So they have to come up with a story. But before they come up with a story, they have to silence those who were witnesses firsthand. They have to silence them. They have to get the cooperation of the guard. These are the same people that bought Judas for the price of a slave. But it was going to take a large amount of money, a large sum of money, to secure these watchmen. But you know what? Every man has a price, right? That's what the world says. That's how they were thinking. And these men certainly did. And their price was very, very high. The reason their price was so high was because they were given the sole responsibility of protecting the tomb. If they failed to do their duty, literally, they could have their heads cut off. This wasn't something to be trifled with. And yet you have to put yourself into the context of the the time and the age and and the, the society in which we find ourselves in the context. You think, well, how could they just bribe these soldiers? I mean, they were they were just they were ready to be bribed. It says in verse twelve that they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while you were asleep. Now basically the nature of this lie is weak at best. First of all, you got to get the, the soldier to admit that he was sleeping, which is basically equal to the death penalty. The way they could do that, because they threw a little caveat in there, hey, if, if the leadership hears about this, don't worry about it. We'll, we'll, we'll cover, cover you with the governor. We'll satisfy you with the government. Don't worry. If you get in trouble over this, we'll just give him some money too. And remember, you're dealing with a, a Roman leader who doesn't want an uproar of the Jews. That's the last thing he wants at this point in history. He's already had a couple of those. He's tried to, you know, compromise in certain ways, and they've taken advantage of this over and over and over again. He's a weak leader. And so the Jews are taking advantage of him. And so they tell the soldiers, hey, you know this guy's in our pocket. Don't worry about it. And it must have been a sufficient amount of money because they agreed to this, the watchmen were paid to put forth a story that while they slept, the Lord's disciples came and stole his body. I mean, can you imagine sitting in a, a court today and announce to the judge and the jury, I consider myself to be a credible wit- evidence of, of a witness of what happened at my house at two o'clock in the morning? 
when my car was stolen out of my driveway. Really? What did you see? Oh, I didn't see anything. I was asleep. That wouldn't go too far. It's just ridiculous on its very face. If the guards were asleep, how could they know what happened? Not only it's inherent weakness, but it's incidental weakness. From the point of those who disseminated the lie, first of all, the watchmen were Roman soldiers. For a soldier of Rome to sleep was basically, on, on duty, was a capital offense. If the story had been true, the guards would have been the first to deny it. They were filled with alarm, lest any such report reached the governor. And it took this persuasive power of the, the religious priest to assure that those men would come to no harm. And even from the point of view of the men who devised the lie itself, you stop and think about this. If the disciples stole the body, why did not the Sanhedrin or the Roman governor arrest the disciples? Doesn't that make sense? I mean, bring them to trial, cross-examine them, find out where the body is, and solve the whole crime. No problem. But there was no body to produce. So the members of the Sanhedrin were nobody's fools. They were clever. They were crafty men. But the best they could do was to launch this offensive against the truth. In the face of growing reports that Christ had risen from the dead, that he'd even been seen and he'd been handled, all they could do was come up with this silly lie, this cover-up, which couldn't even stand up to a serious investigation in probably more than five minutes. See, the fact of the matter was he was alive and they could not deny it. So they had to come up with a, a lie, another story. And you notice here at the end of our text, it says there in verse 15, so they took the money and did as they were directed. And at the end it says, and this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Well, what day is he talking about? He's talking about to the writing of this gospel, not to our day. See, people are so gullible, especially when it comes to religious beliefs. They just accepted this lie and committed themselves to it. It's said that if a lie is repeated often enough, people will believe it. All you have to do is look at the current events, what's going on. See, the news here of of the theft of the body became part of this Jewish anti-Christian teaching from the very beginning. And repeating the lie had been a popular rabbinical way of refuting the fact of the resurrection and that it ever happened. And so we see this this cover-up, as silly as it was, the enemy was able to use it. And I think even today, the enemy uses it. I want to ask you this morning, what, 
What's your response to the resurrection of Christ? I mean, are you one of those people that just want to explain it away and literally commit spiritual suicide? There are those who believe. They don't believe as wishful thinking. They don't believe, as it were, against the facts. They believe because the facts are so clear and the evidence is so strong. And in believing, they receive eternal life. They receive a power to live your life daily. See, that's the message of the Christian gospel. That Christ who died and rose again, there is, in that, there is life. There's eternal life to be had. It was the hymn writer who wrote, Death cannot keep its prey, Jesus my Savior. He tore the bars away, Jesus my Lord. Up from the grave he arose, with a mighty triumph over his foes. He arose a victor from the dark domain, and he lives forever with his saints to reign. He arose, he arose, hallelujah, Christ arose. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, we pray that as we gather for fellowship, Lord, and we leave this place a little later on, that we would not miss this opportunity. That this truth that we speak of the resurrection of Christ, with the truth that we speak that Christ can forgive your sin, transform your life, secure you a place in heaven, an inheritance forever. That's a truth that you can hold on to. That's a truth that you can believe in. Even Jesus' critics during his time couldn't deny the tomb was empty. They couldn't deny the miraculous nature of the lives that were transformed and changed by our Savior. And I pray for each one in this room today that they would look around this room and see lives that have been transformed and changed by a loving, gracious Savior who desires all men to come unto Him with repentance, to bring their sin to Him, To acknowledge their sin before him. Realizing they can't pay the debt that they owe. But clearly believing that Jesus paid a debt. For them. So Father we pray. If there's any in this room who have yet to put their faith or trust in Christ. That you would call them to yourself. That you would move. That you would work. That they would even now begin to feel a tug on their heart. Lord, for us believers, I pray as we leave this place that we would understand the importance of sharing our faith, not just through our lips, but through our lives, Lord, that people would see a transformed life when they look at us. When given the opportunity, we can tell them it's not us putting on a cloak of religion, but it's, it's Christ living in and through us. And that they can have that same transformation if they come to the Savior. Father, we pray that you dismiss us with your blessing this morning. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.